This is God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth, and in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you um, for this reminder of your, um, your wrath upon sin. Thank you that we don't serve a God who takes um, the sins of this world and even our own sins lightly. And hopefully we'll be able to see why that's a good thing as we study your, your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are, there are many different ways in which we can see the world these days. Lots, lots of different perspectives. Um, everyone, it seems, has a take on things. So you have conservative news media versus liberal news media. You have Republicans versus Democrats. You have uh, one race versus another race. You have kids versus their uh, adults even, men versus women. And we tend only to, to see things from the perspective uh, we're at. So if we're a man, we see things from a man's perspective and not necessarily a woman's perspective. If we're a kid, we see things from a, a kid's perspective and not necessarily an adult's perspective. So we see things from the angle that we are currently standing. Or we see things that are oftentimes diluted by the presuppositions that we hold sometimes very, very dearly and tightly. And since our eyes are often portrayed as windows through which we view the world around us, without clear vision, our seeing can become very cloudy. So today in our text, I want us to look at a couple of ways, uh, a couple of types of seeing in the text. And these can be found in your worship guide if you're taking notes. The first is the seeing of a secular or a sinful world. And then the second is the seeing of a holy God. So the seeing of a secular world and the seeing of a holy God. And just so you know, these are the only options for your vision. It's only two. There, 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 is, there is no other way in which we can see the world. You are either seeing the world through the lens of a secular, sinful worldview, or you're seeing it through the lens of a holy God. Imperfectly, but still seeing it through the lens of a holy God. So you may want to listen closely uh, to understand where you might land with those two options. 
So first is the seeing of a secular world. So obviously these first two verses, uh, because I know some of you are reading through the Bible and you came across these and you said, what is going on in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 2? So these things need some explanation to better understand what's happening in the text here because uh, these verses actually describe the, the severity of evil that was emerging in God's world at this particular time. So you have this strange scenario where uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were very attractive. And so we have to ask the question, who are the sons of God? This will help us to make sense of, of, of this text a little bit better. So there's actually two main views uh, about who the sons of God were. There's actually more than two views. There's four or five, actually. But there's two main views where, where most people land. Uh, one is a view known as the fallen angel view. So you have um, this, this word, uh, these, this, these words sons of God used uh, three more times in the Old Testament. And every time they are used in the Old Testament, they are referring to angels, not humans. They're referring to angels. Then you also have some, some compelling passages in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 6 and 7 that also give some pretty solid support to this view. So many believe this to be the correct view. Many uh, evangelical theologians, uh, men and women that you would say, I agree with that person, I, I line up with what they believe. So many people believe this is not a bad view to have. And if you were to have this view, uh, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be way off base by any stretch of the imagination. Unless you talk to me. Because I don't personally agree with this particular, uh, this particular view. Uh, of the sons of God, because I think it, it removes some of the gravitas of human responsibility concerning their sin. So it would not make sense for God, in my opinion, to be angry with people if unruly angels were the ones screwing up the world here. So the judgment of the flood, as you probably already know, is against humanity, not against fallen angels. And if you want to take that a little bit further, we know that angels, fallen angels, have already received their discipline from God in being cast out of heaven with Satan. So I believe the line of Seth view more plausible and stays most consistent with the pattern of Scripture. So this is why we say when we are doing biblical interpretation and things like that, that Scripture interprets Scripture. So when in doubt about a passage, don't immediately run to the commentators, but run to other parts of the Bible. I know it's tempting to do that, especially if you have a, a really good study Bible and you have the commentary notes in there, but run to other parts of the Bible to get more clarity. And so the first thing that you do with that is to look at the immediate context that a particular verse sits in, so which tells us that Genesis 6, where verse 2 sits, supports the conclusion of the line of Seth view. So you have, one, you have uh, his repetition, the author's repetition of the word man over and over again, apart from sons of, 
It's just man. And so you, you get, the, you get the, the kind of the feeling and the idea that he is talking about humanity and not spiritual beings here. So what this text is fundamentally describing is marriage between believers and unbelievers. And I know that is a boring outlook because you're like it's way more exciting to uh, to to think about uh, angels coming down and and uh, getting with these uh, these human women and having babies and they're creating like these superhuman Marvel characters and so we like to think that way that that's what's happening here but I think this is probably a more realistic interpretation of what's happening here and I think something that is way more applicable to us as human beings. None of us, as far as I know, are superhuman. So it goes back to these two family lines of Cain and Seth that I mentioned earlier. Cain's line in Genesis 4 displayed the, the, the depth of humanity's sin to the point that they were bragging about it. They were going to brag about, they were bragging about how evil they would be. And then you have Seth's line in Genesis chapter 5 displayed, displaying God's righteousness. So we see two lines here. One that is obeying God and the other that is disobeying God. So this argument best fits into the whole of Scripture because there is a, there's a constant prohibition throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament against the people of God marrying or even just intermingling with those who are not of the people of God. So I saw this in my own Bible reading this week in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 where the, the people of God are about to enter the promised land. God is giving them this land. He is setting it before them. He has provided it for them. They just walked through the desert for 40 years. And, and then this is how God says they are to engage the people who currently reside in the land. God says to them first, completely destroy them. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And then secondly, if there's still some people who are lingering, do not make covenants with them. Do not go in and do that. And then, do not intermarry with them. Why? Deuteronomy 7, 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reiterates the exact same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he warns the Corinthians, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Which is just another word for the devil. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and now he goes on to quote Isaiah 52 and Zephaniah 3, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, 
Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, the principle, I think, is pretty clear to grasp and relevant throughout the Christian church. God's people are to be with God's people. Whether that be in marriage or in doing life together. If not, the consequences, God's word says, are devastating. So, and and don't sit here and think that you are somehow the exception to this rule. That somehow you can, you can do what, the, what our, 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 our forefathers and, and foremothers uh, could not do. Because you're not. If you choose to yoke yourself, which means to attach yourself to, like oxen who are, that are attached. If you choose to yoke yourself with unbelievers, you will be brought down quickly. So... If, as a, if you are a Christian and you are currently single, I would warn you, do not compromise because you fear being lonely for the rest of your life. And then end up marrying someone who is not a believer. It will be better for you to be lonely than to be trapped in a marriage with someone who does not believe the gospel. It will be devastating. Also, this isn't just for Christian singles. If you're a Christian and your main community is found outside of the church with unbelievers, still have relationships with unbelievers. Don't hear me saying don't hang around non-Christians. Still have relationships. If, but if your main community is with unbelievers and not those found in the body that you've covenanted with, say at your gym or at work or some other civil organization, you will find very quickly that you are not having the influence on these groups of people that you think that you are having more than likely, you will find that they are influencing you more than you are influencing them, especially if you're outnumbered. Because human flourishing, worldly flourishing, looks much, much different than the flourishing that God has in store for his people. The flourishing that God has in store for his people is better It's much different, but it's better. But it's also counter to the world's view of flourishing. It will never add up, ever. So the main idea that we need to focus on that I alluded to earlier is seeing. And this has implications for everything that we're talking about. Because there are different angles in which we can see everything, and that includes how we see flourishing. What does that mean? Uh, what, is, what, is, what, are, what are we supposed to be doing in this world as human beings? So in verse 2, the author tells us that the sons of God saw. 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They desired them and took as their wives any that they chose. So this, this pattern of see, desire, and take, we've actually seen before in our first parents, in Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And it says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So their seeing led them to misunderstand what true flourishing is. Because to them, true flourishing meant satisfying their desires, getting what they wanted, uh, doing whatever it is to make me happy, and that is what I am going to pursue. That is what I am going to take. We don't live in a culture right now that sees rightly. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he puts it this way. He says, on one hand, you can see the world as having a given meaning and a given order to which humans are required to discover and conform themselves to. So you have that stance. And then on the other hand, you can see the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So hold on to that. Because the latter is where our secular culture currently stands. Making of the world whatever they want to make of it. So if it suits me to say, I am a woman even though I am born a man, that means I can take this raw material that I have of, of confusion and personal opinion and personal feelings and then take all of that and create my own meaning and purpose apart from community, apart from what others think and believe, and especially apart from God's design. Because that's my idea of flourishing. That's what makes me happy. But then we see how God reacts to this line of thinking in verse 3. Because in his reaction, we have in our second point, the way we are meant to and should be seeing this world. We should be seeing this world through the seeing of a holy God. We should see the world in the way that God sees it. Because through this, the seeing of a holy God, we're able to see our sin for what it actually is. Which is a great offense against God and deserving of judgment, which is death. We're able to see that apart from uh, a supernatural intervention by this holy God, we are in trouble if he doesn't give us a way of escape. 
And so what we see is that because of humanity's rebellion here in Genesis chapter 6, God sees that it must be limited. And so God speaks his word, and once again, he hands down his judgment. And really, as we look on the story of the flood, we need to see it not only as this, this, this great act of judgment, this violent act of judgment even, but we need to see it also as an act of God's grace. Because rather than allowing this debauchery and this sinful generation to continue on in their sin, God ends it in His mercy. He will not allow His creation to continue in this manner, to continue to be corrupted, to continue to destroy His creation. And so that's why you see that, that number of years that's there, and, uh, 120 years there in verse, uh, verse 3, that God is setting a boundary here of 120 years before He will destroy the earth. He warns them. You have 120 years to repent and believe. And so through this course of judgment, God shows, shows His creation their mortality. So like we learned in chapter 5, all will die. All of us are going to meet our end. And even these giants that we read about here and these, these mighty men, these men of old, even, them, even they will meet their end. And the only way to escape this judgment, the only way to escape God's wrath, is found in the way in which God provides for us. In the righteousness that can only come from him in Christ. So, you have to understand, judgment will eventually come to you just as it came to those in our text. We are not exempt from that. We are not exempt from God's judgment here. And so while we might think, well, 120 years may seem like a long time, eventually, that 120 years ran out, and the floodwaters were released and consumed the earth. And we know there was only one man, one man that was rescued. So your time, too, may also be running out. So you must be ready. This is why Jesus uses the story of the flood as an illustration for his second coming in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the, the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is telling us there that another day of reckoning is coming. Just as we see here in the flood narrative. 
Are you ready? It's the question you should be asking yourself. Are you ready for that day of reckoning, that judgment day? Are you ready to conform your reality to God's true reality? Well, in verse 5, we really begin to get the clarity of God's vision. And what we learn is that the way God sees is very, very different from the way that our secular world sees it. Because God's vision is seen through his holiness. So you see in verse 5, those first three words of verse 5, the Lord saw. The Lord saw. The last time we read these words is in chapter 1, verse 31, where what God saw was very good. His creation. So his perfect purview of flourishing is expounded in the application of his seeing, not our seeing. We bring nothing to the table. God is the one who has given the world meaning and order, and we are to conform ourselves to that meaning and order. Not our own idea of meaning and order. Because in verse 5, God gives this his evaluation of the human race. Of those living in their own ways. The wickedness of man was great. That's how the author describes it. Well, how great was it? Every intention... Every thought, that, that word means every thought, every, every uh, sense of their imagination even, uh, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Only evil continually. All the time, at every second, at every moment of the day, it was only evil. In his novel, uh, Brideshead revisited the author Evelyn Waugh. He has one of his characters uh, describe what it, what it looks like to, to live in sin continually. And I think it's just a great description. He writes it this way. It says, living in sin, with sin, by sin, for sin, every hour, every day, year in, year out. Waking up with sin in the morning seeing the curtains drawn on sin, bathing it, dressing it, clipping diamonds to it. I have no idea what that means, but feeding it, showing it round, giving it a good time, and then putting it to sleep at night with an aspirin if it's fretful. Needless to say, the sin and corruption that we see in Genesis 6, we are seeing the very worst of humanity here. The very worst. Verse 5, it's been said, is the clearest and most comprehensive look at the Reformed doctrine of total depravity. Every intention was only evil, continually. In writing on this uh, Genesis 6-5, Martin Luther says in his commentary, he says, Without the Holy Spirit and without grace... Man can do nothing but sin, and so goes on endlessly from sin 
to sin. So this word intention here in in verse 5 is is important because it shows us just how far humanity has fallen into sin since Genesis chapter 3. And it hasn't been a huge amount of time, actually. And they have fallen this far. Because it's a word, this word intention points us back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 where God formed man. We could say it's where God gives, uh, gives man, gives humanity the meaning and order that they were intended to follow. So what humankind has done is that they have taken these intentions of God and instead of using them to bring God's flourishing into the world, they use it to bring their own kind of flourishing into the world which is a pattern that we will continue to see in Genesis. So while humanity sees their acts as satisfactory and even good, because they are fulfilling their desires, they are enjoying them, they are having a good time, they are eating and drinking and being merry. And what they see is good. God sees their acts as thoroughly evil. Thoroughly evil. Verse 6 tells us just how evil he sees them to be. In just, even in God's kind of emotional reaction to his people. It says, the Lord regretted. He regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Now, does this mean that God thought he had made a mistake? Well, no, it doesn't. 1 Samuel 15, 29 tells us that God doesn't change his mind. So a better way to look at that statement there is is to look at it like a parent who might express sorrow over a rebellious child. How, How a parent might grieve over their child's behavior to the point that they might say, you know what, they're in so much trouble right now that it probably would have been better if they had not been This is how God feels about this situation. God expresses sorrow like a parent expresses sorrow over his rebellious people. It shows how bad it's gotten. And God grieves the fact that they have chosen the way of death instead of the way of life. So while some of you may look at the, uh, the flood narrative that we'll be jumping into next week as unfair, you have to understand that the author here is telling us that the people of earth during this time, they have already destroyed God's creation. Even before God eventually completely wipes it out, the people who are living on this earth have already ruined it. They have brought God's creation to this, not God. So the only way to rectify this situation is to set the pattern of creation in reverse, which is what we see happening in verse 7, where God says, I will blot out or wipe out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So God is so pained over sin to the extent that rather than comfort His people, 
He will destroy them. And then it's verse 8 that we see through this man Noah that we get another glimpse of God's saving grace. Now the word grace here, it might say favor in your translation, but the word grace uh, demands some attention here because um, here that I think what maybe help us clear up maybe some uh, childhood presuppositions that you may hold concerning our man Noah. Because this will protect us from making uh, the wrong application uh, to be more like Noah. You need to be more like Noah and choose like Noah chooses and do as Noah has done. Because the word grace here, what this word grace signifies is unmerited favor. Or another way to say it is undeserved favor. Which means that the recipients of grace actually deserved judgment too. Noah was never meant to be a role model for us. That is not why he is in the Bible. Rather, what we are meant to see here is God's sovereign grace choosing to save Noah from this depraved generation. Which means that the only reason Moses, the author of Genesis, can say Noah found favor or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is because God first moved in Noah so that he had this favor in the first place. So one commentator suggested or helpfully suggested that reading this translation backwards gives us the better understanding of what is taking place here. So instead of reading, Noah found grace, it would be better to say that grace found Noah. Because there is nothing in Noah, apart from this reality, apart from grace finding Noah, that God would choose him. In fact, you can see that God's initiative of grace towards Noah in verse 8 is mentioned before there is any reference to, fe- to Noah's faith and righteousness in verse 9. And that's an important biblical pattern that you need to, to lock into your brains as you continue to read your Bibles throughout the year uh, because we see, it, we see it here in the text that God's grace always precedes our faith in righteousness. It has to happen that way. We would not choose God in our own sinful, dead state. God has to make us alive in order to do that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So apart from God's grace... Noah and his family were just as deserving of judgment as everyone else on the planet. They also deserved to be blotted out, to be wiped off the face of the earth. And God would have been just in doing so. And we know this because of what God says after the flood 
in Genesis chapter 8, verse 12, when he's making his covenant with Noah. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's after the flood. So God's goal in destruction was not a throwback to the garden. Noah is not the second Adam. Rather, God's goal in destruction is judgment upon sin. And Noah, as a covenant head, is only a remnant of God's grace. He's only a a shadow of what is to come. And he's ultimately pointing us to the final judgment of sin that will take place not upon God's creation, not upon his people, but upon God's Son. This is what the promise means. He will never destroy the, the, the world again in this way because he's going to destroy Jesus. God will blot out. God will wipe out Jesus instead of you. So just like Noah, you and I are being shown unmerited grace. Undeserved grace. So how will you respond to that? How, how, how will you respond to this grace that you are currently, if you are sitting here breathing, you are currently being showed this grace and mercy. God is giving you time to repent and believe the gospel. How will you respond to that? Will you continue in your ignorance, ignoring it and pursuing your own empty ideas of flourishing and eating and drinking and being merry until you die? Or will you respond like Noah? Will you walk with God? Will you repent and believe and and obey him in whatever he calls you to do? And ultimately find your rescue from this sinful generation in Christ alone. I pray that you will do that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this, this wonderful and hard reminder of, of one, of how you see sin and how different you see sin uh, than we see our own sin. We see it as enjoyable. We see it as, as fulfilling our own desires. We, feel it, we see it as, as a way in which we, we find our, our rest and our satisfaction and, our, and, and affirmation and, and all of these things. And we just see it so differently. God, help us to have eyes to see our sin in the way that you see it. That we would see it through, the, through your holiness. And as we do, as we begin to see our sin through the lens of your holiness, that we would repent and believe the gospel, whether it is for the first time or for the 100th time, and that we would do that today, right now. Your word says today is the day of salvation. And so I pray that we would repent and believe this day. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Hopefully you picked up a lunchable uh, 
communion cup um, on your way in. If not, you can jump up and grab one. They're right out there on the welcome table. That's how we're doing communion these days. Um, But every Sunday we take communion. Uh, We celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, to remind ourselves again in just a simple way of this uh, great truth of the gospel that instead of our bodies being broken, instead of our blood being poured out for our sin, which we do deserve, uh, God instead chose to send his only begotten son to take that on for us. To literally blot Jesus out for us. And so in this simple way, in this juice that we use, in this bread that we use, we are being reminded of God's grace and mercy toward us. So if you are a believer in Christ, this table has been set for you to do that exact same, that exact thing right now in this moment to remember uh, what it is that God has done for you in Jesus. Now, if you are not a believer and you are here just visiting with us, you are, you are welcome to be here. We're glad that you are here. But you need to understand, one, is that, that you are not here on accident. We believe that God is sovereign over all things, that God is orchestrating all of our lives, and that he has brought you here in his good providence. And so you are here to hear this gospel truth being proclaimed. You are here to see, uh, see us do this weird thing we call the Lord's Supper together, to be reminded and to hear the gospel over and over again. To, to be reminded that your flourishing is wearing you out. Your flourishing is, is killing you. But in God's flourishing, it is abundant life, the scriptures say. So we give you some prayers in the back of your worship guide to, to use. Um, since this is not a time that we're inviting you to come and take the Lord's Supper, we do want you to use this time to reflect upon what uh, God has shown you in his word and even possibly to use these prayers here, a prayer of, of, for those searching for truth, but also a prayer of belief. If you've never prayed to God, you can pray those prayers now. And if you have any questions please come and I'll be right up here in the front. You can come and, and seek me out after the service. I'd be more than willing to, to, to talk with you about uh, the gospel again. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood. For as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Let me pray for us, and then you may take communion as you feel ready. Father, thank you again that you disciple us from this table, that you remind us that it is, um, that it is not about us, that it is a free gift that you have given to us in Christ. And we pray in his name, amen.
please stand and sing with us, There is a Fountain.
10 minutes after we dismiss here, we will begin our members meeting. So that'll give you time to get kids. We don't want to kick everybody out of that, but 10 minutes, members, covenant, current covenant members, please meet back in here in 10 minutes. So with that, receive God's benediction from 1 Peter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has, been, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks be to God.